3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. We are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I said we instead of you. Um, but we, I guess. Uh, and by we, I mean I'm in the studio right now with Inez and Leela. Good morning. What's up? Good morning, everyone. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't see the shaka that Inez is doing right now. But. I actually, my first ever tattoo was a impromptu one in Amsterdam because I was like, I want to get the word gnarly with the shaka. Yeah. That's the most Australian thing I've ever done. Um, wow. I know. That's something I didn't know about you until now. So this is great. Um, revelations all around. Now, before we jump into the rundown, I do want to uh, share a special message from Jason, who has said that he wants to extend his solidarity to all um, Australian Workers Union members, and especially to Qantas baggage handlers, um, who have been thoroughly vindicated in their case, um, you know, about Qantas's poor treatment of them. Um, And so extending solidarity from Jason to all union members. And I also personally want to extend uh, my thanks to all nurses. Nurses are great, quadruple their pay. They suffer from terrible working conditions, overscheduling, undervaluing, underpayment, Uh, support nurses. Anyway, um, shall we jump into the rundown? Absolutely. So first off, we'll hear from Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University and in Science Week 2017, wrote the article Science Owes Us an Apology that discussed how science has been separated from the humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought. Spike sat down with Glenn and recorded a two-part conversation where he was asked who science owes an apology to, what it owes an apology for, and what needs to happen for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change. This morning, you will hear the part two of this conversation. Yeah, and then after that, I'm really excited for this pre-recorded discussion that I had where I caught up with Professor Katerina Tewa and Itinterunga Ray Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Banabans for reparations and for an end to extraction. So this conversation occurs in the context of a recent push by Australian mining company Centrex, which has sought to co- conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. Um, so really excited to have this conversation this week. You're going to hear the first two segments of a three-part interview with Katerina and Ray. So make sure to stay tuned next week to catch the final part of this conversation but we'll also have a link to the petition started by the Bonobon community on Rambi Island in Fiji which demands a defense of Bonobon rights and the prevention of any further mining on, of the island in our show notes as well as much more information about uh, Bonobon heritage identity and culture and uh, phosphate colonialism in the Pacific. 
And before I tell you what our last discussion will be today, I just wanted to make listeners aware that this discussion will contain mentions of suicide. And if you need support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. For First Nations specific support, you can call 13 Yarn on 139276. And for LGBTIQA plus support, you can call Q Life on 1800 184. So finally today we are going to be joined by Catherine Johnson to discuss the recent report Understanding LGBTQA plus SB Suicidal Behaviour and Improving Support Insight from Intersectional Lived Experience. This report is a collaboration between researchers Catherine Johnson, Nicholas Hill, Vanessa Lee Armut and partners specialising in LGBTQIA plus Community Support and Lived Experience of Suicide, Switchboard Australia and Roses in the Ocean. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear about that as well because, um, you know, as uh, as a member of the queer community, um, as members of the queer community, um, you know, we see, like, we experience these struggles, we see people we care about experiencing these struggles, and then... Um, you know, it's just been so tragic to see members of the community kind of fall away and not, um, you know, not continue with us in this life journey um, because they haven't been able to access the supports that they so vitally needed in those moments of crisis. So, Mm, yeah. One thing I'm really looking forward to hearing about is the question, um, how do we protect ourselves? And I think this is a really important question because so many of us have developed strategies independent of mainstream health services. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, thanks, Leela. Well, we might head to a CSA and come back to you with headlines. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 14th of September. Multiple emergencies have struck Northern Africa in the past week, with extreme flooding in Libya and a devastating earthquake in Morocco. In Libya, an estimated 5,000 people are dead and more than 10,000 people are missing after flooding caused two dams to burst earlier this week. Reports say that 25% of the affected city of Derna has been wiped out, with many areas inaccessible to rescue crews. In Morocco, rescues and cleanups continue after a magnitude 6.8 earthquake struck late last week, with experts saying that the quake was not not unexpected given the history of quakes in northern Morocco. The death toll has been reported this week to be rising above 2,900 people. These emergencies have occurred in a region already in crisis. Since April, more than 4 million people have left their homes due to conflict in Sudan, including thousands who fled to Libya. Also in the headlines, and First Nations listeners, please note that this story contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. An inquest into the death in custody of Gongari man Stephen Nixon McKellar began this week with a large rally outside Toowoomba Courthouse marking the beginning of the inquest. 
The coronial inquest will examine the death of Mr Nixon Keller in 2021 when a police officer applied a chokehold during an arrest. A lawyer representing Mr Nixon McKellar's family suggested the office had applied the officer had applied the chokehold because he was told by another officer. The type of neck restraint the police officer used has since been banned in the Queensland Police Service during ordinary duties. With the caveat that police can use the restraint technique if an officer is at risk of death or grievous bodily harm. Family and advocates of Mr Nixon McKellar are calling for a complete ban of the chokehold and say that they want to ensure such an incident does not happen again. The inquest is expected to run until Friday. In other news this week, a senior First Nations academic has quit his role at the University of Melbourne Law School, alleging institutional racism. Associate Dean Eddie Cabillo, a Larrakia, Wadigan and Central Arundel man, resigned following a public speech detailing his encounters with racism in the law faculty and highlighting that the school is not keeping pace with the increased diversity of student cohorts. Melbourne Law School Indigenous student representative Keshi Moore called for an examination of our collective stance on racism, particularly the injustices faced by individuals from the most marginalised communities in our nation. And finally, in headlines, a news report in Nature's Review, Earth and Environmental Journal released this week, has warned climate change is reducing global river quality with climate change over decades shown to increase water levels and algae levels. The review also found droughts and heat waves led to increased salinity and higher concentrations of pollutants. Some of the Australian data reviewed included studies during 2007 to 22, 2020, sorry, when the Murray River was at unprecedented low levels and suffered extreme salinization and acidification and extreme ecological impacts such as widespread river fish kills. The researchers say decreasing water quality means rivers will become unsuitable for drinking water and agriculture. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 14th of September. You're listening to 3CR. I just wanted to um, follow up those headlines with a couple of quotes from uh yeah, from Stevie Lee, Nixon McKellar's mum, uh, which had been tweeted out by the Dajawa Foundation at the opening of the coronial inquest, because I feel like when we have these conversations, um, and especially when they come up in headlines, it can um, it can sort of reduce First Nations deaths in custody to a bit of a spectacle. And so I wanted to bring back some of uh, Stevie Lee's mum's words into this. Um, and so I guess, uh, you know, Raylene Nixon uh, you know, she, she had an incredible speech um, at the at the opening of the inquest and the Dajawa Foundation has been supporting the family and also live tweeting at at Dajawa on Twitter. So she said they will not speak of racism, but they will use it to rationalize his death, to make it seem inevitable, natural. They don't speak of state sanctioned murder, but it will be their conclusion. And I also wanted to read out another quote um, from Raylene Nixon, the loving mother of Stevie Lee, um, just talking about remembering Stevie Lee. So she said, quote, he was fun, cheeky and full. Uh, sorry, he was cheeky and full of fun. Without a doubt, if there were mischief to be made, he would surely find it. He loves stirring everyone up, tormenting and trying to make others laugh. 
According to his social media profile, Sexiest Aboriginal Alive Today, he loved himself and wouldn't walk past a mirror without flexing his muscles and checking himself out, end quote. So it's just a beautiful way to remember this, um, you know, delightful character of Stevie Lee. And uh, we send all of our solidarity and our condolences to his grieving family and support them in their fight for justice. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. And now we will go to Spike's interview with Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University. And in Science Week 2017, wrote the article, Science Owes Us an Apology, that discussed how science has been separated from the humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought. Spike sat down with Glenn and recorded a two-part conversation where he was asked who science owes an apology to, what it owes an apology for, and what needs to happen for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change. This morning, you will hear part two of this discussion. Well, it starts with observation, and that's the problem, problematic bit, right? So it starts with you observing some, some phenomena in the world, and this might be like a cause-effect situation. You'll do one thing and something else will happen as a result of that. So you do A and B will occur, it will be the outcome of that or what they call the antecedent, the consequent. And then you hypothesise, or you guess, what might be happening. So that's a thesis or something? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a guess, really, about what might be happening here. And then you um, make a prediction. You make a prediction. Well, uh, if that happens, then this will always happen afterwards. If A happens, then B will always be the, the consequent of that antecedent. And then you go about testing it through experiment to see whether you can repeat that over again. You, and, of course, the experimental situation is often one in which you isolate, you know, you, you create a context for the experiment, then you isolate and you cut out variable. Yeah, order, like a control thing. Yeah, yeah, in order not to infect the experiment. And then if you, can get, if you can get that thing to keep happening over and over again under those situations, then you will have confirmed... And then, you have, of course, observation comes back in again where you have to measure the outcomes of your experiment or whatever. This can be measured, of course, by us using our inferior sensory perception or, of course, more increasingly these days, we measure it through sophisticated measuring devices or sensing devices or whatever. And if, you're, if you can repeat the experiment over and over again, then that will confirm your, your prediction. You'll confirm your hypothesis and then you'll have a theory. That will produce a theory of what's going on in the world. Now that's important because a theory itself is an open concept, right? It's not 
the end of the story, and this is important in science, is you put forward a theory which, can then, which is then open to being challenged. It's provisional, if you like, until someone can prove you wrong, which, of course, is what Karl Popper talked about in terms of science being about falsification, whatever. Many philosophers and thinkers throughout the years, particularly in the analytical tradition, have used this method to try to prove that something is fixed and, and you know, unchangeable. So uh, uncovering a truth. Uncovering a truth which yeah. itself cannot be tested, which itself cannot be questioned anymore. And this has been, this has seen to be the gold standard, you know, since Plato, it's been the gold standard in, in philosophy if you can seemingly end the arguments in philosophy. Many philosophers have seen themselves as doing this, as being the ones that everyone will ultimately refer to as the one who solved every problem. But what we've discovered, of course, is that, uh, you know, as we've solved problems, we've ended up raising more questions. Is science without reason, without, without the, the philosophical um, aspect, the scientist being like a gun for hire for whoever's funding their research? Yeah, uh, increasingly it's like that, I think. Yeah. And, 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 and depending on, on who's funding the research, is that, could that be pitting them against the, like being anti, like could it be against the community or be against oh, communi collective interest? Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, people working for Tesla, they're working for Elon Musk, aren't they? They're not working for us. They're trying to, they're trying to, to realise the vision of Elon Musk. So, the, you know, and he has the wealth and power to create, to imagine and create the world in his own image, like a god in some sense. Because of his resources, he can basically, he does whatever he likes. And he's not the only one. There's a whole bunch of them who are like, you know, um, and so they have this view of reality. It's usually... Um, involves um, what they call transhumanism or the overcoming of our humanism through our integration with technology. That was also really powerful in your, yeah. in your article was that we're, by trying to overcome um, constraints uh, in yeah. the world, we're actually, by doing that, we're actually uh, reducing, reducing options like living things in the world. Yeah, and that's our greatest power. Humanity's greatest power is our ability. If you if you imagine all levels in in a ecosystem, for instance, as involving different spatio-temporal levels or different space-time levels. In other words, as a process philosopher, I like to think of different levels in reality as involving rates of processes. Okay, so you think of a rainforest and you have the big trees, the big old growth trees that live for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they then create the constraining conditions. For, to um, produce life or the conditions for life at smaller and faster levels on the forest floor. And it's all a sort of symbiotic integration of things. If you remove part of that um, large forest canopy and allow unfiltered sunlight through, then you can sterilise the, the ground below it, all right? So those old trees that live for hundreds and hundreds of years, they're the conditions, they're the constraining conditions which provide the conditions for everything else to thrive. Now, most... Other creatures on the planet except for us aren't capable of overcoming those constraints. They can make a mess, right? They can be annoying, but they can't destroy the balance of the conditions they live in itself. Where that's, our, that's our skill. Our skill is to be able to peer into the micro world, for instance, and manipulate it. Our, our ability is to be able to peer into the deepest time in space 
we can't manipulate it yet, but at least to understand it, right? But we can intrude into higher constraining levels. And one of the most damaging, of course, levels of constraint that we've managed to impact on and intrude into has been the climate. The, you know, the carbon cycle and the, the, the ocean current systems and all those sorts of things, all of these large-scale constraints, which are the conditions for us being able to live at all, we've managed to be able to impact on in some way, which other creatures on the planet could never do. How do you reintegrate um, philosophy back with science? How does that happen, um, Glenn? Well, first, it, it sort of happens anyway. Um, you just have to remind people that, you know, sometimes they do engage in philosophical thinking, you know, usually in relation to crises or whatever. But, yeah, it's very difficult because you have this sort of institutional hierarchy now where science is up here because, because science is what brings in the money. The, the biggest divider, I think, between science and philosophy these days is money and the sort of business model that our institutions work on, our, our educational institutions work on, where it's all about, you know, it's all about attracting funding or it's all about uh, getting your research um, um, levels up in relation to sorts of products that you're manufacturing or, or devising or, you know, new health products, all these sorts of things that can make a lot of money on the global market. And, of course, I don't make any money, except for what I do with students, except my teaching of students every year. I can't get it. This, is, this was the sort of, um, sort of uh, sarcastic aspect of my article, right, where I said, oh, gee, you know, because at the time all these scientists were pissed off with uh, Donald Trump that science was being ignored and they weren't getting as much funding and all that sort of stuff. But So they were out marching in the streets and complaining about not being recognised and all this sort of stuff. So the, so the sarcastic aspect of my article is to say, oh, welcome to my world. You know, now you, got to, now you know what it feels like to be ignored and unrecognised and defunded, you know, because, I, like, I can't get access to research grants. I can't get access to a research grant to do a critical appraisal of science, for instance, because that's not seen as something that, that that will be critical of the money generators and also be something that I won't be generating something that is of monetary value myself, according to the university. So I'll be just, you know, and, and my job as a philosopher is to engage in critique. My job is to actually distance myself, stand back. It's not to be a team player. My job is to stand back and see what everyone's doing and develop some critiques of what everyone's doing and you know, maybe even suggest other ways or better ways we can go, which is, which is how science started in the first place. It starts with philosophical thinking about, well, what's wrong with the world and what's a, how can we approach making it better? That's what generates science. So if you don't have... And this, this fundamentally needs imagination. So imagination is such a double-edged sword, right, because... Philosophers are highly imaginative in that they can conceive of different worlds, alternate worlds, like good science fiction writers, for instance. So they can conceive of something other than their, what there is. And that's also what generates good science as well. But science too often these days is being generated in such a way as it's destroying imagination. It's trying to sort of create a one-dimensional world, or what I call a flatland, a world in which everything is predictable, everything is certain, um, everything is controlled. Uh, get rid of chaos, for instance. Um, and this seems to be 
attractive to some people, but it's a very sort of sterile vision of reality. Getting rid of chaos, for instance, or can guarantee order and control over people's lives or whatever, then that's seen as huge, isn't it? People are very attracted to that. Anti-aging things, for instance, and all that sort of stuff. You know, if you can overcome all of these fears that people have through your product or whatever, then you're seen as uh, being you know, good for business. In doing that, once again, you know, you're, you're th- throwing out the baby with the bathwater. What you're doing in the process of doing that is you're destroying the conditions that actually generate life, which require elements of chaos, you know, which require some uncertainty, which require unpredictability and, and require error as a way of human beings being able to learn. So do you ever see a time when, when um, science and philosophy, like, do you see a time when they're reintegrated? I can't see it in my lifetime. It would take a much more mature and enlightened uh, culture, I think, in order to, be, to go there again. It seems to be going the opposite way. And as, and as our crises become more um, intense such as the environmental crisis, for instance, you won't see um, science turning to philosophy. You, know, you won't see governments turning to philosophers. Already they turn to, turn to the market because they don't want to take any responsibility themselves for any decisions they make. So you have this sort of nebulous market which makes the decisions. The big tech billionaires, of course, part of, uh, part of that market. And then ultimately we will turn to AI, AI to solve our problems for us because we'll, we'll feel we're incapable of being able to do it ourselves. We'll lose confidence and faith in ourselves to be able to solve problems. And so we'll outsource it like we did to, like we did to the, uh, you know, the Christian God in the past. And so that will be very anti-philosophical. A lot of my work is about sort of the lack of maturity we're able to generate in our society. You know, we're sort of we're generating a lot of uh, in, infantile sort of stages of development we have, egocentricity is really the the uh, stage of a three-year-old i always see donald trump as being a, basically a three-year-old running a country and uh there's a lot of a lot of people around that who, whose development has been halted in many ways um in our society and our education system doesn't seem to be doing enough we call it uh what we call it dialectical thinking we call it um being recognized by many of the um great developmental psychologists to sort of the highest level of cognitive development amongst human beings. And this is being able to overcome those egocentric stages and get to a place where you're able to appreciate the world as involving um, opposing arguments, so sort of being generated by opposing arguments. But you're able to appreciate the relationships between those opposing arguments rather than just adopt one side or the other simplistically. You're able to realise, okay, here's an argument here. These arguments actually relate. These arguments actually need each other, in a sense. They're related to each other. And you can't necessarily obliterate one side of the argument. As much as you would like to, you can't necessarily obliterate one side of the argument because then you might destroy life. But that's a very mature position to get to. And our education system and our universities are not focusing on creating or developing that maturity. They're sending us the other way, from far as I can see. Do you remember Gary Larson? Gary Larson was a Canadian cartoonist. Oh, yeah, I remember. Now I know you're talking. Back in the 90s. He was huge back in the 90s. And he had the far side. It was called The Far Side. And one of my favourite Gary Larson cartoons is of the dinosaur convention. So there's a dinosaur convention and there's a 
a dinosaur standing up on the podium addressing all the other dinosaurs. And he's saying, well, my, well uh, brethren, he says, we've got a problem. He says, the climate's deteriorating, the mammals are taking over, and we've all got the brain the size of a walnut. <laughs> so and i fear you know i fear that's where we're heading i fear we're heading uh, to a place where we've got more and more we've got problems that are more complex than we've ever had in human history and yet in a sense even though we're supposed to be more informed and more intelligent than ever we, we we're not equipped to deal with them And that was Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University and spoke to Spike. And in Science Week 2017, wrote the article, Science Owes Us an Apology, that discussed how science has been separated from the humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought. Spike sat down with Glenn and you heard the second part of this episode Um, where he asked who science owes an apology to, what it owes an apology for, and what needs to happen for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. And in... Uh, in theme for what we were speaking about, um, what Spike was speaking about with Professor Glenn McLaren uh, about science, water, how what, how important the earth is, um, we have a song called Love Like Water by Lee Flanagan.
And that was Love Like Water by Lee Flanagan. And it's a really beautiful song to commemorate what is go- who are we going to turn to when the well runs dry um, and make sure that we take care of each other and the earth as much as we can. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It is currently 7.35. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you that I got to have earlier this week with Professor Katerina Tiwa and Itinserunga Ray Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction. This conversation occurs in the context of a recent push by Australian mining company Centrex, which has sought to conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. Katerina is an interdisciplinary scholar, artist and award-winning teacher of Bonoban, E. Kiribati and African-American heritage born and raised in Fiji. She is a professor of Pacific Studies in the School of Culture, History and Language, College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Ray is of Banaban and Kiribati origins and was raised and educated in Fiji. Ray's environment and social justice work are linked to Kiribati people's histories and the extent of environmental degradation caused by extensive mining. This week, you'll hear the first two segments of a three-part interview with Katerina and Ray, so stay tuned next week to catch the final part of this conversation. In our show notes, we'll also have a link to the petition started by the Bonobun community on Rambi Island, Fiji, which demands a defense of Bonobun rights and the prevention of any further mining of the island. But for now, let's go to part one of that conversation. Just to start off, I'll get both of you to to introduce yourselves in your own voices uh, so listeners know who's speaking. So, Katerina, do you want to go first and then Ray? Sure. Come to Maori, everyone, and Nisambula Vindaka. My name is Katerina Tewa. I'm a professor of Pacific Studies at the Australian National University. Um, I am of Banaban and Kiribati descent. Uh, and Fiji is my home, but I've been in Canberra for many years. Thank you. And my name is uh, Isinterunga Ray Bentes, and I am a, a third uh, generation of Banaban uh, born in Fiji. Uh, I'm currently working in uh, Rambi, uh, doing a lot of uh, voluntary service for my people. Uh, this is my third year. And uh, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Um, really appreciate being able to speak with you both because I know that um, between you, there is a real wealth of knowledge, both about, um, you know, the historical side of climate colonialism and of displacement, but also around activism and organizing an international fora uh, for, you know, climate justice and for 
basically the self-determination of Bonobans. So, um, Katerina, I thought maybe we could begin by centering some of the significance of the ancestral lands and waters of Bonobans and the integral importance of Bonoba uh, for its people's heritage and identity. So could you begin by speaking a little bit to what this means to give listeners an idea of what's at stake in this renewed push for phosphate mining of the island that we're going to be discussing? And Ray, feel free to chime in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I have been studying the history of Banaba, which is in the central Pacific, which is now uh, what is known as Kiribati um, for about 25 years. Um, and I I began doing this research because as a Banaban living in Fiji, part of a minority community, I wasn't quite sure who we were and where we came from and how we ended up being one of, you know, a few minority communities in Fiji. And so through the course of my research, both, both at the master's level, the PhD level, and then later as an academic, I started to understand um, the impact of eight decades of phosphate mining on Banaba, uh, but also began to understand it as a, a place uh, that was very sacred and very important to the Banaban people who are now spread across the islands of, of Rambi, you know, mainly on Rambi, but then also um, caretakers living on Banaba and then uh, a, a Banaban diaspora that spreads across Fiji, Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the United States, and elsewhere. And even though uh, there's, we need to, to take a proper census, but there's probably around 7,000 of us in total, people who can claim to be of, of, of Banaban descent. We come from an island that is only six square kilometers, so one of the smallest islands you could imagine in the Pacific, but something that was so incredibly significant to um, the British Empire uh, in, in the Pacific. And Bonobans had been living on Bonoba for thousands of years, almost 3,000 years, if not longer. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty limited environment in terms of flora and fauna um, and quite dry weather where they would be periodic droughts. And it was quite a challenging environment. But in spite of that, Bonobans created this amazing, thriving, relatively peaceful culture that existed in the center of the Pacific and had kinship and links to uh, its closest neighbor, which is Nauru, which is another maybe better known phosphate island. Um, and then also to islands uh, in, the Gil in the Gilbert Islands, which is now uh, a part of Kiribati, um, the Marshall Islands, Koshrai, Tuvalu, and other islands. But because Bonaba is quite, it's relatively isolated and far away from others, um, they developed a really interesting, thriving culture that was this combination of fishing, um, and a connection to the ocean around it because there isn't much of a reef around Banaba. It's sort of like you walk to the edge and then boom, you're in the deep ocean. So they developed all of this amazing fishing techniques. And then it was a historically a nesting place for birds. So because it's one of the few islands where if you're flying across the ocean, you need a place to rest. Banaba was one of those places. And that's actually why there's so much rich phosphate on that island because bird droppings combined with like this marine 
uh, calcium phosphate base, which was also consisted of dead marine life, which fused together with the guano that was coming from the birds and created an incredibly rich phosphate island. The whole entire island is made out of phosphate and it turns out it's quite high grade phosphate. But Banabans understood that they belong to the rock. That is what the name Banapa means, that, that they were people of the rock. And in their um, oral traditions, the rock actually comes from the sky. So you have like land that comes from the sky and land that comes from the sea and fuses together. So scientists will say, oh, it comes, you know, this comes from bird droppings from the sky and Banabans will be like, well, we already know that from our oral um, traditions and our, uh, our origin stories. And so Banabans were people of the rock, you know, they had an amazing culture, but they were left alone because no one, you know, who came across Banaba tried to claim it for uh, colonial empires until the phosphate was discovered. And then it became the center of an entire um, industry pretty much overnight. Mm. And it was Australians, New Zealanders and British um, investors and agricultural fertilizer interests that came very hungrily <laughs> looking for that phosphate. And then the rest is history. Um, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ray, did you want to add anything uh, to that about the significance of Banaba as a as a place and as a center of heritage and identity? Yeah, and I can uh, speak to, you know, the experience of a young person who's not been to Banaba because uh, we are third generations of Banabans. So it was my great-grandmother uh, and granddad that, you know, uh, that arrived in Fiji. So I'd be the fourth great grandparents, dad. I'm the fourth, yeah, yes. fourth generation. Yeah. So as a young person who's not been to Banabe, but I've heard so much about Banabe through all traditions, because our ancestors and our people commemorate uh, and remember, uh, you know, the first arrival of our people on Rambi Island on 15 December, 1945. And I grew up, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, learning our history through uh, the stories that our elders share during the commemoration. And every time uh, someone talks about Banab, I get really hurt about what happened. And uh, which is why for me as a young person, it's very important to uh, do as much as we can to ensure that, you know, the source of our identity, culture, heritage remains and remains untouched because of any further exploration and uh you know uh Action. extraction mm -hmm. uh because we've learned about what the 80 years of mining um are caused to our island and any further you know remining of the island means that whatever was left is maybe less than 30 percent i mean we're, we're really struggling as young people uh to ensure that you know our, our home island remains untouched but yet we have a lot of aspiration to also one day uh you know visit uh Barnabas to make that connection yeah i mean i think that is such a important perspective to bring into this as well because ray as you've spoken to there has been this forced displacement of Barnabans, um you know from what katarina has described as you know people uh making a sense of place and a sense of home and interpreting the world uh, from this base 
that was created out of you know more than human relations uh, from the sea and from the sky and um, understanding their sense of place there, but having that be so severely disrupted through the the phosphate phosphate mining industry. So, um, Katerina, uh, you know, as well as being part of the community of Bonavans uh, forced to make a home on Rambi Island after colonial displacement due to phosphate mining, as you've mentioned, you spent a significant amount of time dedicating your scholarship to critically analyzing these processes. And you touched on this a little bit in your first response, but can you tell us a bit more about some of the history of colonial extractive phosphate mining by companies from Australia, New Zealand and Britain and how this did lead to that forced displacement of Bonavans? Yeah, absolutely. So there's quite a, a well-known story. Um, I mean, well-known in terms of people who who study Banaba about how Banaba they found Banaba uh, by analyzing a piece of rock, quite a large rock that was propping up a door uh, at one and a half Macquarie Place in Sydney. It was a company door, and this was a you know regular multinational company which had people prospecting all around the Pacific, mainly looking for guano. And somebody had picked up a rock and it was propping up the door. And one of the um, chemists from the company was like, they were running out of sources of of guano and phosphate. And they looked at that rock and they said, where's that rock from? Uh, You know, it just had been propping up the door. People thought it was wood. And when they analyzed it, they found it was pure phosphate. And so they discovered very quickly that that rock was from Nauru and Nauru was German territory at the time. So they looked on a map and they went, what's the closest thing? And they found, they were like, amazing, this similar geological formation, 200, you know, kilometers or so from Nauru. And they, like the archives are terrible. They're like, get your guns, get on the boats and make a beeline for the island. Make sure you have your gun just in case the natives are stroppy. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's straight out of the colonial playbook. And so when they arrive on Banaba, just like every other island in the Pacific, except for maybe the ones who are you know, savvy with the number of visitors who come, people were welcomed, people were hosted. You know, Banaba was on one of those islands where they had very good protocols and approaches for hosting visitors and looking after them and feeding them. And these guys, when they arrived, they they didn't sit down and have a chat. Like they just went straight for the rocks and started like trying to work out chemically if this was gonna be something valuable. And I've read all the letters, all the company correspondence, and there's no way to sugarcoat it. As soon as they knew what was on that island, they were like, how do we get rid of these people? They were like, they gotta go. This whole thing is made out of phosphate. So, you know, no discussion of people and belonging to land and home and the fact that villages were all over the island, which meant if you were gonna dig, you're gonna have to dig under people's homes, burial grounds, you know, Bunnabins bury their ancestors next to their homes. Um, The whole place was, you know, over 2000 years of of Bonaban life, as well as all the plants and animals and everything else. So there was this very consistent, like, how do we get rid of them? We got to get rid of them and then plant the British flag because it did not belong to anyone. And they just made it up on the spot. They created a law out of nothing, you know, had a piece of paper, got some men to put an X on it and, and went from there. 
Um, so, and it's, you know, kind of well-documented like this process. The other interesting thing is that women had a much more, had more of a voice and more of a presence and more of a leadership on Banaba. And they erased that immediately. Any other genders they didn't want to deal with, they just, the white men wanted to deal with the native men and they wanted to cut a deal. Um, so it really messed up a lot of gender relations that existed on the on Banaba before that where everyone, not only did they have a voice, but Banaba is unusual in that every single person on Banaba, regardless of age, had access to land. Every single person, so a baby, a child, had access to land and had land that they, that they could call their own, which was marked by coconut trees. So the trees were as important as the land and the rocks. You had to have the trees because that was which would show you the boundaries of each. And it wasn't like property, property in the, you know, in the Western sense, but it was quite this beautiful, fluid sense of, of kinship and relations and exchanges that was based on land and access to land. Um, we're not trying to romanticize it, but it functioned really well socially, economically, politically, um, et cetera. So the the mining didn't just you know like they used dynamite they blasted holes in the land they started digging it up there was like rocks going out full speed but it changed the whole system of land tenure which was actually very very critical to people's sense of efficacy and agency and self-determination like when you talk about indigeneity and people talk about indig indigeneity being based in land in relations to place bunnabins have a one-to-one -one ratio you know like a one-to-one -one relationship with their lands and so uh the miners were like oh we got to get rid of this stuff this is too hard there's like children lining up here you know for us to get leases from them to access their land they didn't want to deal with children they didn't want to deal with you know they wanted a king they were like where's your king let's let's have the king and then the king can sign off on everything so that, that's kind of how it played out. And at one point, Bonobin said, we don't want to lease any more land. Like, we're done with this. And then they the, they had the resident commissioner write a threat to the Bonobins. And they said, um, uh, he said, you can choose life or you can choose death. Which one do you want? Give up your land and you can have life. If you don't, you are choosing death. We will take it from you. I think the words are, your land will be compulsorily acquired for the empire your land will be compulsorily acquired for the empire it was inked in writing and Bonobans were you know they felt like they were being threatened obviously being threatened directly and so this was part of like the build-up of resistance amongst Bonobans they were like these people are not asking us they're just taking the land, you know, mm. so it was, it was pretty, it was pretty bad stuff that went on. Um, and that's how the, the whole thing started to unfold. Japanese targeted the island during World War II because it was a valuable mine. A lot of Bonobans were killed during that period. A lot of workers who were Gilbertese and Tuvaluan, they were also killed. There was a massacre on the island. Um, and so Bonaba unfortunately becomes this kind of, yeah, this space of industry and of empire, of intense colonialism, of luxury. You know, the, the company lived in luxury and shipped in water from Melbourne, shipped in goose and duck and all kinds of fancy things for them to consume while they were digging up Barnabin land. And 
pushing Banabans out further and further until the war happened and then they shipped them off to Fiji. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's kind of how the industry played out. So you have been listening to part one of a conversation that I had earlier this week with Professor Katerina Tewa and Itinterunga Rey Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight for Banaban's uh, fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction. And we're about to go into the second part of this three-part interview now and a reminder to stay tuned next week on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast to catch the third part. But let's hear part two now. Hearing you talk about this, it's it's just so clear that a there was uh, there was no interest in uh, engaging with people in good faith, and b uh, the way that this is played out is is just I guess a significant rupture for Bunaban people in terms of all in one go the imposition of uh, foreign political authority, the imposition of a different way of uh, relation to land, to of a, a pr- proprietary relation to land, um, of a different set of social relations that devalued a whole set of the Bonoban population. And this idea that, um, you know, that land was just a thing. Um, and so I think this really provides, you know, quite a rich context to uh, why Bonoban people are fighting so hard to, uh, you know, repatriate that relationship to land and to say no more bi- uh, no more phosphate mining um, in the area. And I guess that leads into my next question about uh, how foreign political interests, including Australia's, factor into the ability of Bonobans to assert their concerns over and reclaim their relationship to Bonobans' lands and waters, and how these have been resisted by Bonobans over time. Because um, I know that part of this forced displacement uh, meant that Banabans are under the jurisdiction of Kiribati. Is that uh, is that correct? Fiji and Kiribati. Fiji and so Kiribati, yeah. Sort of between worlds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, Ray, did you want to speak to that first and then, Katerina, um, add to that maybe? Yeah, so at this present time, you know, our... So we, we use the word, we fall in the crack between two countries, which is Fiji and Kiribati. And, uh, you know, it's challenging for us because, uh, you know, the occupation of Barnabé by, by the Crown. And then they left us with the Colonial Settlement Act, both in countries that are not working for our development right now. And it's the very... Uh, Colonial Settlement Act that we are struggling to to address the issues of mining um, that has resurfaced through Centrex because uh, you know first and foremost the blind deal agreement that was signed uh, did not consider you know free prior consent from the the landowners who majority are now residing in Fiji and. Uh, now that we are all working with the communities to resist this work, you know, we have to file an injunction in the Kiribati's jurisdiction. So much of our, you know, uh, political pathways to address these issues uh, is very expensive uh, because, you know, we are here, but everything else has to happen in another jurisdiction and the cost of which you know, all of these need to happen is very expensive 
to actually move around people and you know uh, pursue uh, legal redress on what's happening at present. And so uh, even even in Fiji, we were part of a discussion on reimagining democracy and recharting uh, you know the Fiji uh, uh, Fiji pathway into uh, trying to review the current uh, constitution under the coalition government. And we, we, we found out that our our act, the Banaban Settlement Act, uh, which is uh, uh, under the office of the Prime Minister, when everything else is being reviewed, every other legislations and act and whatever you call them in the Fiji Constitution changes, ours does not communicate with those changes. It's a separate uh, process altogether. Uh, which is why for 77 years we've been in Fiji, our well-being domains are so deficit because we don't go with those changes as they happen. We happen, our changes happen in a, you know, what do you call a silo, like in silos. And it's a different process altogether. So that has been, a, you know, the biggest concern uh, because even as they try and repeal or maybe amend some of, uh, you know, the the clauses of our Banaban Settlement Act, uh, nothing has really... It's too difficult. It's, it's too <laughs> difficult, yeah, it's just a different... so difficult. Um, maybe, so, yeah, maybe I can put it in a bit of like historical context as to why it's so complicated in the present. Um, when the mining, the mining finished in 1980, and before that, Bonaparte sued the British High Court. They took them to their own High Court, and they also took the company. They sued the company, and they sued the British Colonial Administration. They lost, and then um, the mining stopped. And they instead of Bonaparte wanted independence, like Nauru, mm. but instead they became part. The island became part of Kiribati, so it became a part of the new Republic of Kiribati. And then the Banabans who were on Fiji because the colonial administration had bought an island for them in Fiji from their mates who owned the island. <laughs> you know, it's like one hand pays the other hand to buy them an island. They ended up in the independent country of Fiji. So between the two worlds and then Australia, New Zealand and Great Britain who owned the company that did all the mining just stepped right out of the picture. They said they washed their hands of the whole event and they let Fiji and Kiribati work out what on earth and how on earth anyone was going to look after the Banabans. And the independent country of Kiribati sort of saw Banabans as a little bit like agitators because they'd want, they wanted their own independence. So there wasn't a lot of friendly relationships between Banabans and this new country <laughs> that they now belong to. So Bonobans actually have rights as Bonobans in Kiribati. Like if you want to travel to your home island, you don't need a visa. You don't need anything. If you're Bonoban, you can get there, but you don't have too many other rights other than that. You like, you can get home, go home, hang out there, but there's no ships that go there and there's no planes that go there. So nobody's really getting there. And then in Fiji, because Fijians were like, oh, here's a new community, okay, you know, like sort of incorporated, but not really properly with not great oversight. 
and services and support and electricity and mm. anything. There's no no electricity, electrification on, on Rambi still. <laughs> We've been there 77 years, you know, barely like a vehicle or and one road. And it, 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 Bonobans just kind of fell straight through. Yeah. You know, so both. Yeah, as oh. as as Ray said at the, at the outset of of that response, um, and it's it maybe it seems like you know one of those patterns that gets repeated in so many places where uh, you know colonizing countries uh, come in, decide what loot they want, and then uh, impose uh, impose uh, administrative systems uh, onto various areas that they've carved up, and then say you deal with it, we're out. Um, and so you know this is obviously left Bonobans in a in a really I guess, um, in a formal sense, politically disempowered position, but obviously not in a sense of um, community authority and uh, determination to continue fighting uh, for, you know, asserting that mining never happened again on Banaba. And so um, I'm, yeah, I'm interested because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the parallels between uh, Bonaba as a source of life for Bonobans and uh, and also as a source of life in the sense that phosphate is a, a massive, um, you know, contributor to the Australian agricultural industry. And that's, you know, such a crucial part of uh, mining the island is to then fuel life making while death making in one place. And so, you know, can you tell us a bit about uh, Australian mining company Centrex is now lobbying uh, the Rabi Council, Rabi Council of Leaders, and uh, concerns about that lack of consultation and transparency with the broader community of Bonavan landowners. Because um, you've really um, contextualized this longer history of colonial governance tactics that have positioned the island as a site of extraction. But can you tell me a bit about how that then relates to this renewed push? Um, because as you've said, mining ceased in the 1980s, but now there's a threat that it's going to start again. So Katerina and then Ray, do you want to add? Yeah. So um, the I think the other little piece to, to think about is um, there's something called the Rambi Council of Leaders, which was set up to be some, you know, a system of governance and democratic representation for the Banabins, um on Rambi, in Fiji, and then also in dialogue with uh, the island of Banaba and the Kiribati government um, in Kiribati. And that council was suspended uh, under the previous Fiji government uh, administration, and they suspended lots of councils. And um, but but suspending the Rambi Council really was a problem because no other systems of representative governance were able to to function um, and exist in that space. And so, like you're already in a kind of a Bermuda Triangle of governance, and then you're like really in an extra uh, Bermuda Triangle. So so Rambi Council has not been reconstituted in the new under the new government in a way that is representative there there's a single like kind of a colonial hangover individual role called the Rambi administrator it's a bit like your old resident commissioners from days gone by and a lot of uh, that person has a lot of um, administrative um, authority and it was the person in that role who signed this deal with Centrix for prospecting 
It was essentially for prospecting, which means have a look around, figure out how much phosphate is left and, you know, the grade, it's it's all high grade uh, phosphate, uh, but how much is left and would that suit many of these markets that still exist? Uh, now, my understanding is in the semiconductor industry. Semiconductor industries use phosphoric acid, which is what happens to phosphate rock, rock when you add sulfuric acid to it. Um, but the, those markets are very hungry for high-grade phosphate um, at the moment. So even though they signed this agreement uh, for prospecting, which then they played down and said, it's just having a look around. It's just a feasibility study. It's just feasibility. Um, they didn't consult to the community about even signing on, quote, unquote, a feasibility study. And that word does not re represent the impact of 80 years of mining, like trying to make it sound like somebody's going around with a pencil and a notebook going, oh, this looks nice. Here's some data for you. Um, it represents like 80 years of extraction and the impact of that for the community. And because everyone's a landowner, it's really quite triggering for people to think about any any proposition for mining, but very important to kind of contemporary greenwashing tactics. They call the initial proposal um, a rehabilitation proposal, which meant everyone was like, rehabilitation, this is such a lovely word, but mining companies don't go into ventures for rehabilitation. They are commercial entities. They have to make their money. They have to, the investors need to make a profit. And so they called it a rehabilitation proposal. And then when you looked at it, it was a remining mm -hmm. exploration with some you know, maybe leveling of the land, which is, and they didn't talk about a cleanup. And I should mention that when the company left in 1980, there's no clean up. That is an asbestos riddled wasteland of industry with broken stuff everywhere, rusty broken stuff everywhere. So by using the word rehabilitation to imply that somebody is benevolent, benevolently coming in to like clean and re rehabilitate and then hand data over to the Bonobans about the the possibilities of, of remining, you know, to do that to a people who've had honestly like a series of con artists over the years come through making money off whatever little profits existed in the industry was, you know, really quite devastating um, for a lot of people. And Ray's been at the front line of like talking with uh, village elders and, you know, chairmen about how we can raise awareness and education amongst our own people. When you look at documents that say rehabilitation, um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it's really playing with words and playing with fake news in a way that um, is is very sad, but that's the reality um, for our people on the ground. And Centrix is an Australian-based company. They already have a mine in Ardmore, where they've been doing phosphate mining up there. I believe they're registered in South Australia. And they kept saying, we've talked to the Rambi Council, we've inked an agreement, they are the authority. But it, again, Rambi Council is one entity, the Rambi administrator is another entity, and then you have people. You have the people, and the people need to know what's going on. 
And that was Professor Katerina Teowa and Itintironga Rey Bantes, who were speaking about the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaba and the fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction. So this conversation uh, was a pre-record that I um, had with them earlier this week, and you heard part one and part two today. And it occurs in the context of a recent push by Australian mining company Centrex, which has sought to conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. Now, Katerina is an interdisciplinary scholar, artist, and award-winning teacher of Bonoban, E. Kiribati, and African-American heritage, born and raised in Fiji. And she's a professor of Pacific Studies in the School of Culture, History, and Language and College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU, and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And Ray is of Bonoban and Kiribati origins and was raised and educated in Fiji. And their environment and social justice work are linked to Kiribati people's histories and the extent of environmental degradation caused by extensive mining. So as I mentioned this week, you heard the first two segments of a three-part interview with Katerina and Ray. So make sure you stay tuned to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am next week to catch the final part of the conversation. And we are going to have a link to the petition started by the Bonoban community on Rambi Island, Fiji, which demands a defense of Bonoban rights and the prevention of any further mining of the island in our show notes. But for now, you can also find it on change.org by searching Stop Centrex Mining. That's Centrex, C-E-N-T-R-E-X. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? So Coming at you on community radio more. stations around oh, yeah, Australia. Right. I was produced like, I in the studios call. of 3CR yeah. Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, uh, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Scroll this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Listeners, please be advised the following interview contains mention of suicide. For immediate support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. For First Nations specific support, you can call 13YARN on 139276. And for LGBTQIA support, you can call QLIFE on 1800 184 527. Next up, I am excited to announce that we are joined by Catherine Johnson to discuss the recent report, Understanding LGBTQA plus SB Suicidal Behaviour and Improving Support, Insight from Intersectional Lived Experience. This report is a collaboration between researchers Catherine Johnson, Nicholas Hill, Vanessa Lee Armut, and partners specialising in LGBTQIA community support and lived experience of suicide, Switchboard Australia, and Roses in the Ocean. Good morning, Catherine. How are you today? Well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought we could start by uh, maybe just a brief introduction to the report and also an overview of its methodologies. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so the report was funded by Suicide Prevention Australia. Um, we knew from previous survey data that LGBTQA plus people were at higher risk of suicidal behaviour. So what we set out to do was to understand their own lived experiences of that distress. And we wanted to do that through an intersectional lens. Uh, and we wanted to focus on protective factors and the different forms of support that they had found helpful. And then the aim was to then draw on those findings to improve policy and practice. Thank you for that background. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to the importance of considering LGBTQIA plus SB support from an intersectional perspective, and maybe in particular you could go over the SB part of um, that acronym. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, we're using SB as in uh, sister girl, brother boy. It's a term that some uh, First Nation people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people use to talk about gender diversity, where somebody may have the spirit, a male spirit or a female spirit. Um, so, so that's the kind of SB acronym. Um, intersectionality, though, points to the fact that people uh, often have more than one identity and then that can lead to overlapping forms of marginalisation. So y- you may have a, an identity within the LGBTQA um, uh, c- um, collective, but you could also experience things from other identities like race or racism, or you might be um, trans or gender diverse, or you may have a disability. So in that sense, we're trying to say that support needs are shaped by the whole of a person's identity. Um, And then we need to make sure that services, so if if they're great for LGBTQA people, but, but they may not be great in terms of cultural diversity or for First Nation experience. Um, So we're arguing it's really important for services to be inclusive of all aspects of a person's identity, um, as that's key to them protecting against distress and supporting people when they're in crisis. Yeah, so just um, adding on to the idea of intersectionality, um, obviously it brings up a lot of issues in the past about barriers. So one of the central concerns of the report is barriers to accessing potentially life-saving support. What yeah. has the report found those persisting barriers to be? Yes, well, I mean, there's a number of these and, you know, it can depend on um, potentially where you live. So um, barriers can be financial. Do you actually have the funds in order to access services to pay the kind of gaps that might be required Um, but they can be geographical are there any services that are appropriate for you within your area and that can also add to financial stress if for example that the most appropriate services if you live in a regional or rural area and you need to travel into a city that can also create further financial uh, impacts Um, um, and then um, there can also be a lack of understanding or responsiveness to LGBTQA plus SB suicidal stress within services. So uh, you may not have great experiences um, when you've actually um, accessed those services um, and that can, that can act as a future barrier. Uh, the other areas are actually understanding the mental health systems. Um, we found that people from culturally diverse backgrounds you know, described the complexity of those systems really know where to go for help so right from the very beginning um, it's like well how do I find the right type of um, psychologist for example who might be able to help me Um, and finally you know being vulnerable um, can be very isolating it can isolate you in your distress and that can become a barrier itself in being able to seek help when you most need to.
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the questions in the report asked loosely, what has protected you at times of risk, which I think is a really important question because so many people do resource themselves outside of mainstream health services. Mm. Uh, Could you expand on the thinking behind this particular framework of inquiry as well as some of its findings? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things about protective factors... um, is if is that basically we hope if if protect if we can elevate kind of protective factors, then hopefully that means that less people would actually reach crisis point. Um, we want to kind of reduce that uh, by having these sorts of things uh, interventions happening before someone gets to that stage. So here I'm talking about things like um, having affirmative family, friends, workplaces, so places where where people are you know, openly support and celebrate LGBTQA plus SB lives, um, that can ha- that can act as a, a massive protective factor. Um, and then also having access to community groups where people can make connections um, to those who have shared experiences. Uh, and those could be online or they could be face-to-face, but those, those things also act, um, the kind of that social network can act as a protective factor. And, and knowing that there are other people like you and certainly our participants who were people of colour talked about that Um, and then I mean in terms of just being listened to which is you know for for those of us who know people who've experienced distress you know it it can be a fairly simple kind of task of just sitting and listening that can have a massive impact on on people being just being able to talk um, about what's going on for them and we also found that access in LGBTQA services was generally found to be positive for people in distress but there is probably some more work to be done there in terms of making them more inclusive around First Nation um, and people of colour. Mm. So just out of interest, um, leading on from how LGBTQA plus SB people might resource themselves, um, the report sought to identify the strengths and challenges Um, of the community and highlight the sources of acceptance, affirmation and connection that helped participants live affirmatively. Could you speak a little bit more to um, the findings in terms of acceptance, affirmation, connection and living affirmatively? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that these are are important interventions. So how do we kind of um, improve that? So that we're looking at social, cultural uh, change. So we know that the context in which people live has has a big impact, and we know at the moment that we're living in a time where there's a lot of um, anti-trans sentiment that circulates. So that would be um, something that we'd want to think about the consequences of that mm. for people. Um, so, so what we're trying to do is set out our recommendations to improve that policy context um, in which people live, so so that, that those sorts of changes could be made. Um, we also want to to kind of our recommendations for for the findings are around how do we um, deliver services that really do attend to that lived experience of LGBTQA plus SB people. So that that experience needs to be embedded in how services are designed and how they're delivered. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then we also need to raise knowledge and awareness um, within general mainstream services through through training 
Um, and, and so that's one of the key kind of outcomes for us um, in terms of trying to translate our research into training uh, to basically make people a bit more confident about the way that they do approach LD, LGBTQA plus SB lives when they when they come face to face with them, um, you know, within services. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really good to hear some of those central recommendations. Um, it was made clear in the report that more research is needed. What can yeah. we expect in future studies? Well, I suppose one of the one of the limitations of our research is the size of its sample. So we interviewed twenty people from across Australia. So, so next steps for us is to try to extend that research through a larger sample size um, and continue that focus on protective factors. So, trying to find you know what other things have helped, what other good models um, are there that could be replicated. And then the other aspect for us is because we have developed this training with Switchboard Victoria, um, we want to um, evaluate that. So as the training's rolled out, we want to actually look to see um, what kind of impact it's having, whether it's working, and then, you know, so which are in a um, process of kind of continually improving that training. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and... Finally, I just wanted to ask one more question about confronting stigma. Um, at both a policy level and at a grassroots level, say, for patients, uh, do you have any thoughts on how we can confront st stigma when seeking support both internally and externally? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the policy context, you know, it sets the scene really for how people... Uh, so you know, we know that the the um, the kind of plebiscite around marriage equality had very negative impacts on people's mental health because there was a, a very public kind of airing of pro and anti views. Um, so you know, we need to we need to understand that the consequences of that for people's mental health. So so having a kind of positive policy context in which people are accepted is is really um, vital. Um, and then in terms of when we think about services, I, I, mean, I always think that you can have a rainbow on the door. Uh, it might show that, you know, that's a place that someone could go, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say they'll have great experiences once they're inside. Um, every interaction um, has an impact. So I think there's a, that kind of sense of responsibility that, you you know, whoever the person is in front of you, you don't really know exactly what's going on with them and they need to have, so, you know, Pronouns really important. Um, just not assuming who someone's relationship with, because those are the sorts of things that can bring down a shutter and someone turns away and feels that like it's not a place for them. So those are the sorts of things I'd kind of be recommending there. Mm, yeah, and I think it was a really important port, uh, point in the report um, that was made that a lot of people uh, experience have negative experiences in the mainstream medical system, and that is a major bar barrier for people uh, seeking yeah. support again. Um, and just to sum everything up, I was wondering, uh, what do you wish uh, people knew about suicide? Well, I suppose, I mean, suicidal distress, I mean, that's something that can happen to, um, you know, to anyone. But what we found is that often for LGBTQA plus people, it can start very early on in life. So people may have been struggling with thoughts and feelings, you know, from from childhood um it starts much earlier than you might imagine and and that and i think that you know the understanding that that kind of the social context of feeling affirmed and accepted is really vital um 
it as a kind of the key kind of intervention approach mm. rather than having to wait until somebody actually really needs to access services. Yeah, a really important point to finish on. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. We just heard from Catherine Johnson, who discussed the recent report, Understanding LGBTQA plus SB Suicidal Behaviour and Improving Support, Insight from Intersectional Lived Experience. This report is a collaborative effort between Catherine Johnson, Nicholas Hill, Vanessa Lee R. Mutt and partners specialising in LGBTQI A plus community support and lived experience, Switchboard Australia and Roses in the Ocean. And listeners, if you do need support after that conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114. For First Nations specific support, call 13 Yarn on 139276. And for LGBTQIA plus support, you can call QLife on 1800 184 527. You're listening to 3CR. listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. Yes, and uh, we are coming up to the end of this show, so maybe we'll take you very quickly through what we covered today. Inez, do you want to kick it off? Yes. We first heard from Professor Glenn McLaren, who spoke with Spike, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University, who wrote the article in 2017, Science Owes Us an Apology. And Spike and them discussed how science has been separated from the humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought, um, society, as well as what is required to overcome crises like climate change. Yeah, and then after that, you heard the first two parts of a conversation that I had with Professor Katarina Tewa and Itinserungare Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaba and the fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction. And uh, you will find out information including how to sign the petition to stop Centrex's new initiative to mine phosphate on Banaba by looking in our show notes and make sure to tune in next week for part three of the conversation. And finally, we were joined by Catherine Johnson to discuss the recent report, Understanding LGBTQA plus SB Suicidal Behaviour and Improving Support, Insight from Intersectional and Lived Experience. And listeners, if you need support after hearing this conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114. And that's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. We'll catch you next week, but for now, take care and enjoy the sunshine. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.